when you talk about sustainability, everybody has a little bit of a different definition. So they have a little bit different perception on what their role is as part of that. And I think as we draw that circle beyond the processing plant to encompass contract growers, you know, we're going to have to walk through to make sure that we're all on the same page, that they see their role and, and where we're trying to move things forward. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. BSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Elizabeth Bobek, and today I have Dr. Todd Applegate. He is professor and the R. Harold and Patsy Harrison Chair in Poultry Science at the University of Georgia. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. We're excited to have you today. Um, so for all of our guests, we start by asking, how did you get into the poultry industry? Can you tell us a little bit about your start? I'll, I'll try not to give you the long version, but it's always an interesting journey, right? Um, I, I grew up in a small town or a, on a farm in a, close to a small town in Iowa, in western Iowa. I saw three pathways off the farm but still to be involved in animal agriculture. And I always tell students this, you know, so I saw the veterinarian, I saw the pharmaceutical salesman, and I saw the feed mill manager. Those were the three career paths that I saw as my 18-year-old self coming off the farm. And the, the most interesting one of those was, was the vet. Um, and I didn't know anything about poultry at the time. And it was really... My, my beef cattle advisor at Iowa State, uh, you know, he guided me through through courses and I worked at the vet school for, for three years as an undergraduate, thinking that that was the career path I wanted to go towards. And, you know, it, I, I give credit to my advisor at the time because he saw me and, and he's like, you know, I know poultry's consumption's going up. You know, I see what you're trying to, to do. There's going to be good opportunity there. And he saw me struggling to find a summer internship. And he said, hey, go, go talk to Dr. Sell. Um, his office is just upstairs. He has six internships with the poultry industry that he struggles to find students with. He was just talking about this in the faculty meeting the other day. And they'll give you a thousand dollar scholarship when you come back. And I was like, where's his office? <laughs> and that's about all it took, you know, and it was, it was about halfway through that summer that, you know, it was just, you know, this, this is really resonating with me. I knew the, the, the beef industry, I knew the swine industry, but the poultry industry was just that much different. And I saw myself more 
in a career pathway than I saw in the other the other sectors. So called him back up halfway through the summer, Dr. Sell, and and said, hey, could I work in your lab, you know, to get a little bit more experience on the poultry side? And he said, sure. And that was the beginning, at least, of, of my poultry experience. That That's incredible. Money is a driver for <laughs> undergrads and continues to be. <laughs> You know, but I think it was, I give my beef cattle advisor really that, that credit because he, he put me into a couple of courses, you know, so I took a poultry production class. I took a poultry nutrition class as an undergraduate and um, it was really those. My only real understanding of the poultry world before was we, I had done two exchanges um, through 4-H as a high school student. And one of those was to here in Georgia, in Cherokee County, Georgia, just north of Atlanta. And the farm that I stayed on, the um, they were a, a contract grower for a broiler company at the time. And the the dad of the family was was working in the plant. Uh, so it, that was my only snippet of what I knew on, on the poultry sector um, up to that point. So... It's, it's it just yeah, it got me hooked. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Working with nature and not against it, chickens fed AX3 Digest consume significantly less feed and water to produce one pound of meat. Successful flock performance is determined during the first 10 days post-placement. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in-barn performance, bird health, and a drier litter. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. So I, I gotta, I gotta ask. Since family was from Iowa, do you have anyone still running the family farm in Iowa? Do you ever come north to pheasant hunt? It's pheasant season right now. <laughs> it is. Um, I did make it to my parents. My parents still live on the farm um, in western Iowa. And dad is an armchair farmer now. Um, the younger cousin who's in his young 60s um, does, the, does the farming along with his, his, uh, his kids. Um, so he, he helps out on occasion, but not a lot. It's kind of neat, though, going back to the family homestead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we were back recently for their 60th wedding anniversary. So it was... Little little uh, reminiscence of of where we were yeah. growing up. That's awesome. the uh, The family farm tradition in Iowa is pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, and that part of, the off, part of the reason I moved off the farm was it it just was. I had two brothers, and I don't think any of us really wanted to go back to the farm, and it was too small in terms of acreage really to make a living off of. So, yeah, that's a common story. <laughs> So, uh, so how, once you got your start in poultry um, and you did your undergraduate and your graduate degrees, um, what, you know, what happened after that to kind of guide your career to where you are now? Um, you know, in starting in grad school, you know, I, I really wanted to go into industry and I didn't really know how the, the nutrition side of that sector was, was organized. Um, so I thought, oh, you know, as a, a master's student, maybe I could become a formulating nutrition student or helping out a Ph.D. nutritionist someplace. Um, but it was really through grad school that kind of guided me. And I think it, it I think up to probably 
um, nine months before I graduated with my PhD, I was going into technical service, possibly R&D in the poultry sector. And that's that's where my pathway had taken me. So um, I never quite made it there. Um, I, but it, it, it was interesting because it really is life happenstance on, on how pathways turn out, right? So um, Dr. Sell told me up front that, hey, yeah, you can come do a master's with me, but I really don't like students to, to do three degrees at one institution. So he did a wonderful job of introducing me to people, um, ended up going to Ohio State, worked with Mike Loburn, and part of that you know, why I chose to go work with Mike. I knew I, I lacked some physiology background and I know Mike fulfilled that, you know, in conversations and projects and, um, but Mike had worked previously in, in the industry before he came on faculty at Ohio state. And he knew a lot of people and I knew he would introduce me to a lot of people. And that's really one of the things that I was looking to, to gain out of that, that experience while I was doing my PhD and, um, he helped guide that. So at Ohio State, you know, part of the faculty in the animal science department are located in Worcester, Ohio, in the heart of Amish country. And, you know, as a as a grad student, you know, it's it's wonderful because you're done with your classes that you take in Columbus. You're back in Worcester in the small town and you're either going to develop a passion for research or maybe not. <laughs> for me, it really and part of it was the people that were there at the time, my fellow students, the faculty there, um, just fostered that spark of interest in research. So that pushed me a little bit more in thinking about career pathways, still in industry, but um, interviewed with a company, um, an enzyme company. The, the, the role that they would have had me in was fairly narrow, and I had to go through that interview process to really recognize within myself that, you know, thinking, thinking of two enzymes and my, my interests at that point were much broader. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get so bored in this position. <laughs> that, Understandable. That it, was, it, it was really that experience. I was like, man, I need to think about either faculty positions straight away or getting a postdoc and looked at several opportunities and then ended up in in Maryland with uh, Rosalina Onel, another Cyclone alum. Um, so so spent spent one year with her out there, wonderful experience, got back to my nutrition roots um, while I was there in Maryland and um, just just happened to was a wonderful journey to get a get me there. So yeah, I, I find that um, there's such a jump between the graduate experience and then postdoc and then your first job, the postdoc really helps set you up for success. <laughs> it, it does. And um, it, it was really good. It wasn't a long experience. I would think I was there for a year. Uh, you know, it was, was really good. She got me entrenched, at least in, in grant proposals, what that really meant. Um you know, kind of bridging that part of what we do in academia with applicability, you know, reinforcing in me that, hey, you need to have your your truth checkers in the, the poultry sector to always have these conversations with to make sure that what you're doing is relevant. Um, so she did a really good job of, of kind of mentoring me in that direction to, to making sure that I always had the, a truth check and reality. 
um, in, in things that we did. So, yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. So if you've made that part of your career, are you seeing other people still doing that? Or do you think kind of uh, the, the field of poultry science needs to do a little more relevance checking, truth checking to make sure we're all staying relevant? I, I think it's an iterative process. Um, we, we had a gentleman here from a feed additive company here over lunch today, and we talked a lot about this. And, you know, as our science gets even more complicated, it's very easy to put blinders on to narrow in on our specific topic. Um, for students, we always see, you know, where they're getting into the cell, looking at cellular mechanisms, you know, in, in, in my world, if I'm looking at mechanistic responses to maintain nutritional efficiencies of what the gut brings, but balancing that with um, intestinal health, um, you can get lost in a hurry, right? Looking at cytokine cascades, right? Um, but for students, you know, I, I think it's, it's partly building that mentoring portfolio of people you're going to. Um, in some cases, that may be their graduate committee. Just just making sure that the composition of that committee has the the reality checkers. <laughs> um, the, the making sure that hey yeah it's great we're talking about this mechanism let's take it back to the tissue let's take it back to the whole animal let's take it to a population or a flock basis um, you know or is what we're talking about is there some realm of commercial practicality currently or in the near future um, but making sure the students at least have have thought through that process. Yeah, that it's such an interesting balance and question because sometimes the the molecular work leads to other outcomes that might be unexpected or novel for the field, but sometimes you start projects that are a little too in the weeds and maybe they don't really have a commercial applicability or at least you don't know about one yet. So it's interesting. It's this balance between maybe discovery work and doing a little more uh, direct industry applied work. It is, and it's a balance. And I think for the student, though, just the, even the presence and having the dialogue, you know, kind of forces them to have, they need to be able to communicate their science, right, and the, the practicality of that. So it's, it's making sure that they're thinking through that process of what the future potential is for the science bucket that they're working within. Yeah, that, I mean, that's an awesome point, being able to talk about what you're doing in a way other people can understand. Um, even my own students, they're such experts in their field, but sometimes I have to just back up and say, well, what, what about this? And then they, they can describe it, but they kind of forget that they're so into the day-to-day -day changes that someone else might not be able to follow or understand what they're doing because they're not in the same field. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's always good, you know, and I have to say, I learned, you know, back to my, my time in Worcester, I think back to conversations that I had, um, you know, a lot of those were with other students, and I learned so much from other disciplines, right? So it's, I always think I'd love to go back to grad school because it was one of those times in my life where, you know, you're under the protected umbrella of the university, and it's it, it's the time in your life where it's okay to 
to go inquire about this. It's okay to ask this. It's okay to explore this. Um, and that time and freedom, sometimes we, we don't get to enjoy as much as we, we did at certain times. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen some graduate and undergraduate classes that sometimes I think maybe I'll, just, I'll go sit in on those. They sound really interesting. <laughs> yeah, the the science has moved so far forward in a lot of the areas that we're working in that it's like maybe I need to go have a microbiome refresher. These these students are ahead of me as far as cutting techniques. So. <laughs> Oh yes, it, it is, and you know, I, I was in that area probably up until just a few years ago, and um, I, I, I was sitting in a graduate students committee meeting the other day, and it was wonderful because I was getting educated on the statistics part of where we are right now in the microbiome space, and um, we we got into the weeds on talking about uh, false positive rates and what that means within the literature currently and uh, within the literature currently, they're estimating that where people reported differences, maybe 40% of those are really false positives today. You're like, wow. But on the same token, I'm, I'm glad that we've pushed the science forward because if we haven't gotten to this point without having some of those, those conversations previously, still have a ways to go. That, that's what I love about science and good scientists is that we're always willing to change and move if we find a better way or we understand that maybe a, a process we were doing wasn't the best way. So that that's what really excites me about open-minded scientists that are, are willing to change and improve. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I'd say the other thing that, you know, my hope for the next generation as well is that sometimes we're, we're, we're protective of our science, but, um, you know, things that we can do to encourage the next generation is talk about the assumptions that we make, right? There's, there's, we often forget about that. Um, it's the data and the science. Oftentimes we try to personalize that to what, what we're doing within our group or our own research, but, Put it out there for the world, right? Put the assumptions that, that you've made out there to make sure that we can come up with more creative methods on how to make sure that if those assumptions weren't correct, that we, we truth check them and go back and create something better along the way. Yeah, I, I agree. So, uh, so along the lines of kind of checking and truth checking and seeing where we're going, um, I'm I'm kind of interested in the topic of sustainability, you know, and how how do we know in the poultry industry, how are we, you know, quantifying some of the sustainability efforts? Uh, are these initiatives really moving us forward? You know, that sort of thing, the, the net zero and what are all the metrics involved with that? I'm kind of interested in your take on that topic. Um, it's really complicated right now, but in a good way, I'd have to say. Um, as, as a component of that, you know, I was part of my work when I was a postdoc in Maryland really was, I'd say, environmental nutrition. And I spent probably the first part of my faculty career at Purdue in, in that environmental nutrition aspect on my research side. And then on the extension side, I was really involved in environmental discussions. At that time in Indiana, we were really um, moving through the implementation of nutrient management planning, um, getting and implemented a, a phosphorus index and how we were going to make that uh, 
how we were going to roll it out to uh, to producers, making it um, not as <laughs> making it still economically feasible for them um, to accomplish. So it at that point it was very regulatory driven. Um, so today, as you move fast forward to the sustainability initiatives, it's really interesting that it's not necessarily the regulatory side that's that's driving the discussion. You know, it's it's creditors, it's investment. Um, a lot of those are asking the social responsibility questions on what sustainability is, which is trickling down into, you know, products we are producing and supplying. Um, so it's coming from that angle. But then also, in, you know, it's a little bit broader bucket as well, because it also includes some discussion of poultry well-being on top of that. Um so it, a lot of folks have come together, and I think it's it's a noisy space in that um, there's a lots of different ways you can can get to that sustainability benchmark. And if company A, company B, company C are all using different frameworks and methods to get to the same point, it causes confusion in the marketplace um, for large customers and. Um, the investors and the banks and all of them. So uh, at least for the poultry world, there's a, a good group here in the U.S. that's cr trying to create a kind of a unified framework so that they're all talking the same language and putting their initiatives all under the same umbrella. So there's been some good strides that companies have been able to make um, towards their own net zero. But when you talk about sustainability, it's partly what circle do you draw as to what you encompass towards that sustainability effort. And so mostly where a lot of the companies involved with this framework now are, you know, they've drawn the circle on, on their direct ownership and controlled of what that is. So you, you take the broiler sector, it's mostly processing themselves to try to get to a, a net zero for the landfill um, plastics you know if plastics are the main thing that they're they're sending to the landfill what can they do to minimize that waste stream going out you know the, the difficult part is still yet to come when it when it that circle begins to broaden to begin including the supplier side of that right and in our in our meat bird industry, that's all of our contract growers. <laughs> um, and that's where it's getting complicated again. And for me, it's it's interesting because it kind of loops back to where does university fit as part of the sustainability effort. And um, it seems like some of the discussions we had on the environmental side, you know, 15, 20 years ago are coming back applicable today. Um, so really, at, at, at this stage, it's not necessarily having a, um, the initial conversation, at least on how do they encompass the, the grower side of that, is just really more an accounting exercise to just get a better handle on where where things are on the grower side as it fits in total for that sustainability effort. And that might take a few years of accounting of, of you know, energy inputs, energy resources, feedstuff, um, what they're using on feedstuffs to to water to manure application, just getting a baseline uh, 
of that information before we can come back and say, okay, let's look at intervention strategies to reduce that footprint. So it's good to see the conversations happening though, and it is moving forward, but that's a big leap to, to draw that circle a little bit more broadly. Well, who, who would you say right now are kind of the companies or people to watch on this? Like if, if you were interested in maybe seeing a company that's made great strides or, you know, a sector or, or something like who, who are the change agents or the, the interesting groups that might be doing some unique and wonderful um, things? I don't know if I'll point to any specifically just because, uh, um, but there, there are a good host of those, you know, some of the real on the broiler side, some of the really big uh, broiler companies in the U.S. are part of that conversation, but yet they're not the only ones. We have we have some that are um, in the teens in, in terms of rankings that are still doing some awesome things. I'd say the same thing on the, the layer side, that um, it, um, it it's a mix. So it's not only big companies, it's, it's kind of folks in the middle and... Um, they're doing interesting things all over the place. And, and part of it's just unique to, um, it, it's, it's very difficult in that space too, because, you know, a lot of it's very geographic specific, right? Um, and then it's finding partners, you know, so as an example, if, if um, uh, plastic liners for totes is one of the main, you know, plastic, coming out of the processing plant and going to the landfill, well, then it's finding a, a supplier that could, you know, once you wash it up, can you make, um, you know, poly decking material or lumber, you know, out of that with a nearby supplier. Um, so it's very specific. And So um, this summer, my group went over to the World's Poultry Congress in Paris. Um, and something that I thought was pretty incredible is there's not plastic cutlery anywhere. Um, everything is, you know, like a, a thin wood or other recyclable product. So do you think that we're kind of behind in some of these like plastic recycling or just materials options when you compare us to other countries or are we using the plastic in a way that might be more sustainable in the system that you're talking about? Um, I don't know whether we're behind necessarily. I think the difficulty really is, is going through the, the prioritization of what are the big impactful parts of that equation. Um, but then it's also change behavior. Right. So if we all if we all changed our our drinking straws to to uh, maybe a compostable, um, it, it wouldn't make a great impact, but it, it does have a change behavior and attention to the issue. Right. So you have to balance a little bit of the change behavior so that we do pay attention to some of the, the bigger things that may be more impactful. Um, and, and then I, I think we are just in that role as a society of trying to figure out where where can big big gains be made um, with still not not having a detrimental effect on somebody's business right? how can it how can it really be additive um, to everyone 
So that's that's the tough part. But the we're we're making it. Some good conversations are being had. Some good tools are being had. I think the tough thing too is um, when you when you talk about sustainability, everybody has a little bit of a different definition. So they have a little bit different perception on what their role is as part of that. And I think as we draw that circle beyond the processing plant to encompass contract growers. You know, we're going to have to walk through to make sure that we're all on the same page, that they see their role and, and where we're trying to move things forward. Um, you know, and then it's 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 working. You know, we have, as an example, some of our some of our faculty here in the department are working to try to look at um, things to improve the environment of the bird in the house. Um, but how can we do so? at the same time with reducing, say, utility input, right? So simple technology, um, give a shout out to, to Brian Fairchild and Mike Zarek on our faculty trying to integrate uh, just variable speed fan technology into poultry houses. You know, not a high-tech technology, something we've been, we've had for years, um, but we haven't integrated it into poultry houses. Um, it, it, it does reduce total electrical need on the house. Um, they've done some long-term studies looking at, you know, 20 to 40% electrical savings on a house, which is pretty amazing. Um, but the fan costs a lot more, right? So part of it then gets to a broader conversation on, you know, can we get, say, NRCS cost share, you know, and that, that is, those decisions are made on a state-by-state -state basis. So how do we get some of those conversations on technologies in front of people for potentially getting cost shares to increase the adoption rate more quickly into a space um, if it's going to make a big impact like that? Those small changes are incredible, and I'm, I'm happy you've got faculty that are researching in that space because... It, they already exist. The fans exist, right? If the technology could be adopted, that would be crazy. <laughs> cool. It, it would be. It would be. So there's, there's fun things like that in the poultry space that always are like, oh, my goodness, this is this is cool. Yeah, the simple ideas are usually the best ones. That's I, I appreciate simplicity. <laughs> and so, so something else that um, my group is also interested in terms of sustainability is the broiler feed itself and um, the use of byproducts and other things in poultry feed to reduce cost and also provide us, you know, a stream for products that otherwise would maybe not be used. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm interested in, in what you think about the nutrition and the feed side of sustainability, as well as this massive shift to antibiotic free diets. I think that, also has a, a role in overall sustainability as well. It does. You know, and the other one I'll put in the parking lot for a second, but also, you know, genetics and slower growth bird. Put that in the parking lot for a minute. <laughs> but you're right. You know, part of the, the feed is so much a part of that equation. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. And I, I feel, you know, the, the fun thing, and I'll geek out in a minute, um, I don't get so many chances in my department ed role to geek out, uh, but it, it's fun coming back to learn, you know, so I really enjoyed um, the, 
the U.S. Roundtable for uh, Development of a Sustainable Poultry Framework uh, met in October, and I felt like I was you know, going back to class because I had been out of that realm for so long, and then coming back into it uh, was fun for me. Um, there's another group through AFIA and iFeeder that really has, has tried to tackle the same thing um, from, from a feedstuff um, point of view as well to at least create the accounting mechanisms um, to begin that conversation. Um, and, and that one's really difficult. You know, if I, if I look at the percentages of, of corn and soybean that are used by our, our poultry sector here in Georgia, it's a very small percentage that's actually produced here within the state. Most of it comes from, from the, the eastern Midwest and upper Midwest, um, and it has to get here somehow. <laughs> so, yes, that takes a little bit of footprint to happen. Um, and, yes, there's, there's an uptick on that, that, that cost, but um, have we factored into that versus other sources um, into that sustainability discussion? I don't think we, we have quite yet, but um, we're, we're getting there. Um, but it's not an easy one because every feedstuff begins to change. You know, we're in a, a point in time where valuation of, of different components of feedstuffs is changing, right? So we've seen the distiller's world change where the valuation of the, the oil side of that has greatly gone up. So they're not putting it into um, DDGS anymore. So that fat content went down, which means our caloric value for the bird is, has dropped. And so now we're needing to look at that as a much different ingredient almost than what we were looking at, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. Um, and I, you know, conversations I've had with distillers, folks on the soy side, I don't think that part in conversation is going to change because there's so much demand for human consumption on the oil side that that value is, has really gone up. Yeah, that that's really interesting. So um, I know we've done some work with the distillers and the location that it comes from and how much oil they take out really changes the feeding value. So um, interesting byproduct to use, but I kind of do like using it if when we can, just because I feel like it makes a circle of sustainability because where else is the distiller screen have such a major market? It's, it's really cool to be able to use a product like that. It is, you know, and it does have, it does have some drawbacks, but it does have opportunities, right? So you do need to balance the amino acid side in the total diet with what, what it's bringing to the table. Um, that's never an easy process. But we did see some benefits on the fiber side when we were looking at strategies to try and reduce ammonia emissions. Um, when you couple feeding it with with um, other things such as like a, a zeolite to try and sequester some of the ammonia as well. Um, it, it, it was strangely additive, even though our crude protein content of the diet went up a little bit. Um, but I think it was essentially the manure or microbes, you know, you had a bulking factor within the manure itself. So the microbial activity to drive off ammonia was, was not, was much less. So, um, 
we were seeing, we added in another strategy, we could cut ammonia emissions by 30 to 40%. Um, wasn't economically feasible um, at the time, but. Yeah, that's where the, the relevance comes in, but really cool outcome. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. So, so what do you think, or how do you think diets have really changed in the last, let's say 15, 20 years compared to more current diets with the entire health regimen also changing with most of production is moving towards antibiotic free. It is. And it, it, oh my goodness, it was a much different conversation years, years ago. Um, you know, this, when I, I started on faculty at Purdue in the year 2000, at that point, you know, we were still use, utilizing much more um, animal what I want to say, um, animal meals, meat and bone meal, poultry byproduct meal, um, than we are today, right? We've moved much more into all, all veg diets. Um, at that point in time, we were just starting to introduce, um, phytase had been out there for a little bit, but not long. So we were looking at further implementation of, you know, utilizing that in the industry. Um, beginning to talk about uh, carbohydrates, right? So we, that was, you know, at, at the realm of just discovery and application at that point, um, you know, and, and moving along, you know, another five to seven years, you had the advent of, of proteases. Um, so just enzyme technology has, has, grown leaps and bounds over the last two decades. Um, I hate to put a, you know, we used to talk about generations of what, what's the second generation of phytase coming out and the third generation. I don't know what generation we're on today, <laughs> but it, it has changed. And some of the interesting conversations we had to have on the first and second generation um, was just very interesting. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll a lump in then back to the, I'll call them the, the gut health feed additives. I don't like calling them antibiotic replacements. That's yeah. all. <laughs> um, but they're the whole aspect of mechanisms, modes of action on what we've learned in different spaces, the different products can bring to the table has been very interesting over the past. Um, you know, I, I would say since about 2008 or so, so that's been a, a very interesting space that's developed. And I think the difficult thing for, for people that are developing products in that space is that we tend to commoditize that conversation. Um, so that makes it difficult for them to, to, to really show how their product is unique versus competitors. Um, when in some cases they're very unique, right? So probiotics are usually are, are developed very differently. They bring different positive components um, to the table, but each product is somewhat unique. Yet many people think of them as commodities. Um, even more extreme is the plant extract world. Um, it's a even broader example of you could you have certain plant extracts that we know um, cause inflammation and we use them in the immunological world, you know, pokeweed mitogens, right? We, we look at the inflammatory response 
um, to what that is versus others that can be immunosuppressive. You know, so that's quite a spectrum of what they would bring to the table. Yeah, it, it's uh, kind of gone wild west just a little bit with all the potential options you could put in a diet. Now, I think they're a little more complex than they used to be just with enzyme options. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probiotics, plant compounds. It's, it's crazy. It's overwhelming. <laughs> it is overwhelming, you know, and there's, I give credit to our, our poultry sector in general, you know, it is the, the scientific level of what that is. Oh my goodness. It is, it has raised the bar, so to speak over the past couple of decades. Um, but, but need, you know, so it, it does have to Products do have to stand the test of time. Um, there is a lot of issues related to feasibility of incorporation, right? If, if you have a micro bin, there's only so many micro bins that you have in that particular feed mill. So you do have to make choices as to what's best um, for that particular situation, that particular production, your specific commodities that you have available. Um, so it's, it's tough decisions to make. So how do you think with all of the technologies that we have just, you know, right now, and I think there'll be some nice new fun enzymes or combinations of probiotics that might help in the future. But um, how do you think right now we can use what is available to create a more sustainable just way we feed the bird or diet? So what what do you what do you think we could do right now that would increase sustainability? Um, I I, I'll start the conversation by saying I don't like the term precision nutrition. You didn't use it, so thank you. <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, and I, I don't like it because I don't think we we often do not have a good handle on what ingredients we're actually feeding to the bird, right? So say as an example on the soybean side, soybean coming into a particular process or into the feed mill, um, you may be sourcing it from two or three different places. Um, you know, having a range in any given week from one and a half percent crude protein from the low side to the high side, right? So that's that's not very precise at all. So it's more in how we specifically. I think the gains to be made are really within that that space of variation and minimizing the variation. Um, and, and there's different ways to accomplish that. Um, the difficult ones, typically, you know, real-time testing and formulation, um, incoming ingredient segregation based off of that testing, um, a more robust method of inline, say, NIR or other systems to understand exactly what nutrient brings to the table. Um, conversation we had over the lunch hour today was, you know, NIR is great. Um, yes, we can, we have more precision for what that means on the, say, amino acid side, energy side, we've made great strides in the last decade. That's still very much an imprecise science, but means so much to the bird. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, knowledge and, and practicality be, to be gained just on the energy side alone. Um, but the other missing part of that spectra from NIR really is, is that on the mineral side, right? So we think about everything that, say, phosphorus um, or some of the micro minerals bring to the table. Uh, 
oftentimes in formulation, we consider the primary commodities having zero in, in many cases or the availability near zero for the animal. So having some rapid methodology for understanding that mineral portion would be great as well. Um, but for me, that's, that's kind of where a lot of the gains can be made. Um, and that's not necessarily changing dramatically formulation is just understanding better where we are with the ingredients we're using to be able to more more specifically be able to understand that yes we can deliver this uh, this nutrient package to the to the bird for every single meal that they're eating yeah, yeah that that's such an important point because nutritionists can formulate whatever they want on paper but the actual ingredient really is going to drive the precision of their formulation and how the the bird grows or performs so it it's interesting that some of these simple things are are uh, maybe the the linchpin for places where we could improve that have nothing to do with actual diet formulation it has to do with analysis so i think that's really interesting <laughs> Yeah, and kind of coming back to your, your your question earlier on what has changed, say, over the past couple decades in the nutrition space, are you know if you just look at corn and soybean meal, you know we used to talk about eight eight and a half percent crude protein corn and forty eight and a half percent crude protein soybean meal. Um, to our students today, that's very strange because <laughs> we haven't been in that world for a long time. Um, even today's soy is is uh, you know, we're, I think this year we're probably more around 46 and um, corns drop partly because of varieties that we're planting to um, just based off of other needs, right? So more easily fermented starch, a bigger proportion of that, that seed is, is starch to be fermented. Um, yeah, it's changing, changing our world, but we need to make sure that, that our students are still keeping an eye on that and what that really means. Yeah, you're not uh, you're not alone when you're feeding animals. There's a lot of other fields that you rely on. <laughs> yeah, the genetics technology for plants fascinates me. Um, but I like I like the animals. I have to appreciate the plant geneticists though, because they're thriving or changing some of the outcomes that uh, that we care about. <laughs> it is, and it's it's. I think our students too don't have a, an understanding either of. Um, really that that pipeline, right? So any changes the plant geneticists are making, you know, it's for their primary customer. And their primary customer is the, the, uh, the crop grower, right? So they're mainly interested in, in how much yield can I get out of your seed, right? Because it's a commodity. They're selling that to somebody else that's then selling it to somebody else. Um, so there's several links in the chain and then the value um, doesn't always translate from one customer along that chain to the other. So, yeah. yeah, the competing interests, that's really quite an interesting thing. It is. It, it is interesting, though, in getting folks together and talking through is their shared valuation across, you know, and part of it's um, asset management. Um, on the soy side, you know, some folks have made some some gains on looking at rather than guaranteeing a crude protein minimum 
Um, if you begin looking at guaranteeing, say, a, a just a total lysine minimum, um, the variability goes down considerably. Oh, that's so interesting. But it has to be a value because, you know, protein is one thing to analyze. Lysine is a com- completely different um, nutrient and cost point, you know, so some of that valuation has to be shared between the two. Oh, gosh. Um, is there is there any other uh, burning points <laughs> that that you'd like to talk about before we move on to the three questions that we ask everybody that talks on our show? Um, no, it's just an interesting world, you know. And I people often ask me, you know, it's what what haven't you solved all the poultry problems yet? <laughs> <laughs> We've been at this for so long, and no, we haven't. Um, which is great, right? A um, little bit of job security. It's it's fun. It's it's a lot of the issues we're involved with are very dynamic. And for me, the fun part is is really more. It, it creates some some across disciplinary discussions on how we approach and, and tackle issues. Um, I think the the fun thing for me, you know, an example is really the the animal well-being side really is taking a lot of um, bringing different disciplines together from computer science to engineering to, to, uh, to physiology um, and then just practical aspects of management. So um, those complex issues are, are fun to me because of really bringing together different folks and teams to be able to address some of the complex things that we're doing. So, Happy to be part of the mix. Yeah, yeah. The the working on teams is fun. I always find other fields approach problems differently than than we do within animal science, and it can kind of reveal maybe some of the weaknesses or the strengths of uh, the the problem you're trying to tackle. Exactly. It is time to our famous three. So um, I've got the three questions that we ask everyone. Um, and the first one is, what is your favorite poultry-related book or resource? My favorite, I have to say, I, I have it right here. This, this lovely, um, the 1994 NRC. It's seen better days. Um, <laughs> you can tell it's been well used. Uh, but it, but it, it has a special place for me as a, as a Cyclone alum, you know, I was going through my master's work with Dr. Sell, who chaired the committee um, while I was doing my master's there in Ames. So it, it has a very special place. Um, and for those of you on the podcast that don't recognize that, yes, this is purple because this was Dr. Sell's favorite color. And all the oh. other NRTs at the time were very earth toned. And he's like, I want to see it stick out on the shelf so I know exactly where it is. <laughs> I love so that. It's right. so practical. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, those little pieces of trivia are so interesting. I'm glad you shared that. <laughs> Thank you to the late Dr. Sale. That was, that's awesome. <laughs> Question is, is, will the next update, if we ever get it out, remain the same color? I hope so. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I was only involved in kind of making sure that the, the project was moving forward and helped out a little bit with the fundraising effort. 
um, amongst several others. So um, I stepped away a little bit, but I, will, I think it remains to be seen. So we'll have to ask Kirk Clazing because he's chairing the, the committee. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Um, because I now am involved much more in recruiting, bringing teams together, trying to foreshadow things. I, I think it's really a couple of leadership books um, and resources more than anything. I went through uh, a, a wonderful um, leadership development program uh, here two or three years ago. And, and one of our, our instructors, her name was Claudia Fernandez. So um, it's one of her books that she wrote with her husband. It's called The It Factor Leadership, um, Becoming a Better Leader in 13 Steps. That's one of them. Um, the other is is uh, one of my former students, Darren Karcher, who's on faculty at, at, at Purdue, kind of tuned me into one of the leadership programs that he always pays attention to, and that's that's uh, John Maxwell. So John Maxwell is one of my my uh, go to podcasts every every week, and and uh, listening to it and several of their books that they put out all the time. So that's great, great advice. That maybe I got to start listening to that podcast. <laughs> um, so our last uh, question is, in your opinion. What sets successful poultry professionals apart from those that are not? Um, I, I think the biggest thing for me is is mentorship, um, and I, I have the philosophy and and of a plurality of that. You know, so it does take a village, um, but part of it that makes people successful is recognizing where they would like to be. Um, and surrounding them with a mentorship team and actively trying to improve themselves towards areas that they need improvement within or strengths and that help them to get to that end level. You know, and it, in the academic sense, um, we try and reiterate that to our students that, you know, they need to be actively searching and thinking about where they're going, where they need to develop professionally, um, not only in, in thinking of how they're going to set themselves up while they're here at the university, but continuing on that philosophy as they go out into their professional careers. Um, one of my biggest worry buckets is that um, we have so many more folks now going and working out of, you know, working remotely. Right. So you don't have that potential mentor, you know, two doors down from you that you can go have a cup of coffee with. Right. So this generation needs to be much more active in thinking through that process and what that is. Um, but it, it does have to be in an active process. I think the, the other side of that and, you know, my hope for the next generation always is that they're thinking about that, but then also willing to be able to be reciprocate to the generation that's coming up behind them, right? So I, my hope is that we're creating that that iteration of expectation that is coming forward. And I know I had wonderful mentors, still have wonderful mentors that helped me along the way. So um, always wanting to help and give back. So that's my hope 
That's excellent and sage advice. Well, thank you again so much for uh, chatting with me today. This has been really fun and enlightening. <laughs> it has been. I appreciate the opportunity. It's been good, good talking with you. You're welcome.